This podcast was recorded on March 9th, 2021. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide updates or changes. the Sherman Show. I'm Jeff Sherman here with my co-host Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And today we have two special guests. Uh, we're putting this on the YouTube channel so you can watch it there or you can just listen to us. I always feel like we look a lot better on the audio cast than the, than the actual video. So, but if you'd like to meet Alex Shahidi as well as Damien, um, I'm always going to mess this up, Basurier. Uh, they are both managing partners and co-CIO at Evoke Advisors. That's an RIA uh, out in Los Angeles, California. So welcome, gentlemen. Thanks. Hello. Yeah, so we're going to do a twofer special today uh, because you guys work so closely together. So maybe you could kick us off and tell us about um, both, both your individual backgrounds, but also how you guys partnered together and started working together to really work at, Ari- um, work at um, Evoke Advisors. Sorry, I got the Ares still in there, the legacy name. Sorry about that. Yeah, that's okay. Um, well, well, thanks for having us. Uh, so so my, my roots go back to Merrill Lynch. I was there for 15 years, uh, started in the late 90s at the top of the internet bubble. And so that my first lesson was markets can fall 50%. And that teaches you a certain, certain uh, perspective about investing. I was there for 15 years. I met uh, Damien uh, while I was there. He was at Bridgewater, which, which I'll describe shortly. And in 2014, I felt it was time to leave. Uh, we needed more tools in our toolkit in order to and manage client portfolios. So I left, uh, started Eris in 2014, and uh, about a year or so ago, we merged with Evoke, uh, former colleagues of mine at Merrill. We've been talking about merging together for about 15 years. Uh, it took it took some time until all the stars aligned, and finally uh, we were able to make it happen. So very excited about that. Damon. Great. So so I was. Uh forged in the fire of Bridgewater. I spent almost a decade there. And uh, that's where I got to know Alex and uh, was really a a very formative period for me in terms of shaping the way I think about building investment portfolios. And Alex, interestingly, you know, being in Merrill where, you know, you normally think of the brokerage firms as more sales organizations. Alex was one of the more sophisticated investors that we had at Bridgewater. And he actually ended up writing a book on asset allocation which is very much in line with the, the framework that we utilize in managing client portfolios. Um, and so he stood out to me early on in my career there and actually had a meeting with, with Ray Dalio um, probably in 2009 uh, when, when I was working with him. And uh, he and Ray had a spirited conversation afterwards. Ray grabbed me in the hallway and said, hey, the guy I was talking to, he's got good common sense. We should hire him. So, uh, so I actually called Alex. I gave him that feedback. And uh, I told him that part of the deal, though, would be that he has to move to Connecticut. And uh, that, was, that was a deal breaker for him. So, so at, at, he, he basically turned the tables, though, and said, well, you know, while we're on the topic, would you ever consider working with me? And so in 2014, we made that a reality. I, I moved back to Los Angeles more for personal reasons. I grew up here. Uh, my wife's from here. We wanted to raise a family here. 
So, uh, and, and Alex and I had been talking about starting a business together for many years. And, and so we made that happen in 2014. And, and, uh, and today the, the business is about $20 billion across maybe 400 clients, uh, both institutional and high net worth. So I find it interesting, Alex, when you started off, you said you, you came in at the top of the bubble and it, it, you realize markets can go down. Well, that's not the narrative today, right? Um, isn't it the narrative that stocks only go up and markets only go up, right? So um, to talk about that, how that shapes like your thinking too, because you know, philosophically, we're all um, you know, a function of our own experiences, right? And so I noticed the, the risk attitudes depending on like what class you were indoctrinated in. I say class by what year you came into the market. If you're an 03 type of person, you tend to be more of a mistake, uh, risk taker than someone who started like, you know, April of 2000 and 2000, right? So how has that kind of formed some of your thinking over time? And do you think it does have an impact on your risk taking abilities? Uh, it, it absolutely does. You know, when you, when you start out and the market drops 50%, you can't ignore that reality. And then it rebounds and then it drops another 50%. And so the first, you know, people forget the 2000s, the stock market was negative for a decade. And, and then we had this great bull market of the last 10 years. And if, even if you go back, you talk about what your vintage year is, right? If you, if you grew up in the 80s and 90s, all you had to do was buy stocks. And whenever they fell, you'd buy more and you would do great. I think part of what I think should shape the way you think isn't just your own experience, because that's very limited, is to do a lot of reading, understand market history, learn from other people's experiences. And, and if you talk to anybody who lived through the Great Depression, they never borrowed again because that was a life-changing ex experience. You shouldn't have to go through a devastating experience in order to change your perspective. So I think it's, it's very useful to see the world through others' eyes, not just people who are living today, but people who lived hundreds of years ago. And, and I think when you do that, when you zoom out enough and you see all the different things that have happened in time, not just in the US, but throughout the world, it gives you a very different perspective from a, a more narrow view of, you know, markets only go up and you see the devastation that can occur. And, and that should inform our, you know, thought process because that's our job where, you know, we're, we're fiduciaries. Our job really is to protect people and, and grow wealth is secondary, right? Because the way you compound wealth through time is you just avoid catastrophic losses. That, that's the, really the, the key to long-term success. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You, you, you remind me of the old saying that the intelligent person, you know, learns from it, its own mistakes, right? But the wise person learns from other people's mistakes, right? And, and then also, as you're saying that, you're thinking about the framework of saying, avoiding the catastrophic mistakes. So Damien, with your experience with Bridgewater, we think about how they try to balance risk um, in many different facets. Um, how, how, did you, how do you use that experience when thinking about avoiding some of these catastrophic outcomes? Well, ultimately, the goal of a great portfolio is to be able to deliver uh, consistent with your objectives in all different types of environments. And what we've found in looking at portfolios uh, over time is that most portfolios are concentrated essentially in a single asset class, that's equities. And equities have environments in which they do exceptionally well, and a lot of environments where they do very poorly for much longer than people realize. So for instance, in the 2000s, the stock market was negative for over a decade. Um, in the you know, mid-60s to the early 80s, the stock market trailed uh, cash, you know, leaving your money in the bank for almost 20 years. And so these periods can be much longer than people realize. 
and concentration can be a, a very dangerous thing for portfolios. And, and so at Bridgewater, the way we approached it was really focused on finding individually attractive return streams that were reliably different. And with regards to, to you know, public market asset classes, for instance, in terms of thinking about an asset allocation, we wanted to find assets that reliably did well in different environments. And when you hold those things in roughly equal proportion in a portfolio, you got a portfolio that was pretty robust through changing environments, through wars, through inflationary periods, through recessions. And, and that ultimately was, in, in our mind, you know, kind of the, the definition of a good portfolio is one that provides a high return relative to risk or a portfolio that can be very consistent across changing economic environments and, and the inevitable surprises that we'll always face in capital markets. Yeah. And Alex, you wrote your book, I think it was 2014, um, called Balanced Asset Allocation. And I think the, sub, the subtitle is perfect, too. It's, it's the hook to buy it. How to Profit in Any Economic Climate, right? And this is what Damien's talking about here. What, what is kind of the key takeaways of, of thinking about that? Because um, when I talk to investors, especially over the last year or so, um, there seems to be more FOMO in the market, the fear of missing out. How much Bitcoin do you own, or you know, what's the latest stock, the Game Stops, and things like that that have that have been kind of these um, social media crazes. So, how do you step back in, in a market like today and apply those concepts of having a balanced portfolio? Well, if you if you think about what drives asset class returns, it's the environment. So, so Q1 of last year, you had a you know a, catas- a catastrophe occur that blindsided nearly everyone, and Stocks collapsed, commodities collapsed, but treasuries were in a bull market, right? Tips were in a bull market, gold went up. And, and you don't have to predict those things, but you can just own them in a balanced way to basically be indifferent to what the environment looks like. And, and I think the way most people invest is there's this tendency to try to predict what the future holds. I, I call it crystal ball investing, where you know I think the future holds this, therefore I'm gonna buy these things that I think will do well in that environment. So if I told you we're going to be in a Japan-style deflationary depression for the next 10 years, you wouldn't go out and buy growth stocks, right? If you knew that to be a fact, you would buy treasuries, you'd buy gold, you'd buy your old cash. And, and I think people are overconfident in their ability to predict what the future looks like. And, and, and our, our sense is I think we're more humble and we realize we don't know what the future holds. And that's particularly true today. If you just look at what's happening in the world. Right? You have zero interest rates or negative in much of the developed world. You have trillion dollar deficits financed by you know, multi-trillion dollars of printing. You have a pandemic, you know, the path of which we don't fully know yet. The rise of populism. You have all these deflationary secular trends of, of, of high debt and uh, technological innovation uh, demographics. I mean, these are major forces and how it nets out is just really hard to know. And I think if you try to predict what the future looks like and then invest based on that single outcome, you could get totally wiped out. And, and our thinking is don't try to guess. Start with, I want to be balanced so that, so that I'm protected against all these potential tail outcomes that could certainly occur, especially on, they could be extreme. You could be like Japan, you could be like the 1970s or anything in between. And you don't really know. So you got to own the inflation hedges. You need deflation hedges. You got to own all these pieces in your portfolio and sufficient amounts of each in order to protect yourself against those outcomes. Now, I think that's very good too, because when I say balanced asset allocation, a lot of people are gonna uh, gravitate towards the old kind of the 60-40 model, which I don't know if anybody actually owns that model. Uh, you know, it's something out there that's been purported for a while. A lot of us look at it from an academic standpoint. But Damien, when, when you talk about 
you know, construction here as well. What are some of the ideas you guys bring into this when you talk about balancing the risk? And let's talk about how one can size positions and think about owning these various uh, various assets that can perform in different environments as Alex has laid out. Mm -hmm. Well, so the, there's two steps in that process. The first step is which assets to own. So which assets are reliably different? It, it's interesting you mentioned 60-40. 6040, as, as you noted, very few people are actually holding the traditional 6040. They're not holding the, the, the broad bond market for the 40%. They're actually holding things that today look a lot more like the other 60% because they're reaching for yield. So in that fixed income category, you're getting things like you know, real estate investment trusts or MLPs, which are master limited partnerships, basically pipelines, or high dividend stocks or preferred equities. You know, so there's lots of things out there. People are reaching for yield. They're going into riskier and riskier things. And as a result, their portfolios are getting less and less diversified, which is okay when you're in a bull market as we've been in, but every so often you have this terrible negative surprise like we did in the first quarter of last year. And investors have a lot more risk than they realize or that, or that they can tolerate. Um, and so that, that's a critical piece. Find the assets that are reliably different. And so when we think about that landscape, we want to find assets that do well when growth is strong. And that's what most, most investors are already holding, things like equities and, and riskier credits. But we also want to have representation from assets that do well in a recession, like Q1 of 2020 or 2008. So th those would be things like treasury bonds and gold. We want to have things that can do well in a rising inflation environment. We haven't had one of those in a long time, but certainly with the extraordinary actions taken by central banks, there's a possibility of that looking forward. And so we want to have inflation hedges. In the 70s, that was a devastating time to be a traditional stock and bond investor. It was an awful time to be a 60-40 investor. You wanted to have inflation hedges, things like hard assets, commodities, real estate, those types of exposures. So we want to make sure that we have representation from those types of assets. And then, of course, you could also be in a, in a weaker inflation environment. And so we want to have assets that can do well in that weaker inflation environment or even deflation, which is devastating for most assets. So once we've identified that universe of, of assets and, and basically in public markets, we view it as stocks, treasuries, inflation index bonds and commodities. That's basically basically the four categories. Then we want to hold them at a level of risk and return that's similar across those different assets. And the reason we do that is we want to make sure that each of them are just as important to the overall portfolio result. The problem with the way most people hold bonds is that they don't matter that much. So they are you know, lower risk, lower returning securities. But actually, if you add a little bit of leverage and you go longer duration, you can make a treasury bond look a lot more like a stock. And when you do that, you get the benefits that Alex talked about. So in Q1 of last year, treasuries were in this bull market. And if you were holding them in a similar, at a similar risk level to stocks, you ended up getting more or less a, a, a nice offset. So treasury bonds were up 20 plus percent when stocks were down 20 plus percent in the first quarter. And you, you probably weren't all that concerned about the environment. And so that, that's ultimately what we're trying to do in terms of constructing this portfolio. Yeah, so it sounds to me that you guys are more focused on the risk contribution um, from owning an asset than necessarily the return prospects. And so you're trying to harvest things that have positive expected returns in the long run, but instead of you know kind of muddying the water and trying to forecast necessarily returns all the time, you're really thinking about that risk and risk integration. So 
that leads me to ask the natural question is, what are some of the largest risks out there in the market today? And how are you trying to implement them in some of your strategy? Well, part of, part of I think, what you have to think about is, is what are the different outcomes that we may experience? And obviously, there's black swans and things that we, we, we can't predict. Like, you know, two years ago, nobody was predicting a global pandemic, right? We just went through one of these things. We're still going through it. Um, so some of the risks are, are that you just don't know, the risk of not knowing what's going to happen. Um, but you could certainly have a deflationary environment. And that, that is just devastating for wealth. You know, if you just look at, if you look at Japan, right, you look at Europe the last 10 years, um, the deflation pressures are real and it's really hard to create inflation. I mean, we've been trying for a while without success. Um, you know, the Fed has really put its, you know, the pedal to the metal and told you interest rates are going to be near zero for as long as we can keep them there. Um, and we're going to print and print and print until we get inflation. And still, we don't have big signs of inflation. There's pockets, but not, not CPI. Um, so we could be in a deflationary environment. We could be in an inflationary environment. And most portfolios are not protected against either of those outcomes. It's, it's more of a 60-40 is more of like a dis disinflationary type of portfolio, like the 80s and 90s. 60-40 was born out of the 80s and 90s. Nobody was investing in 60-40 after the 70s, right? Because 60-40 didn't perform cash. Um, so, so that environment is just unlikely to transpire. And, and so you want to own those kind of more of the tail hedges. Um, so that's, those are, I think, the biggest risks that we think about. Yeah, you, you, you mentioned, you know, that it was a construct of the 80s and, and it, it worked very well in, in hindsight, right? And when we see a lot of these newer creative types, and, and this has been a crit criticism of things like risk parity um, as an approach to portfolio management, is that, okay, well, great, you did it, you know, over a 40-year bond bull market, you know, it was a 38 year, then a 39 year. That's how you get to a 40 year, right? Um, but there's been a lot of critics of that. And then people questioning the role of fixed income in a portfolio. Uh, do one of you want to address that? How you think about that, given that we have very low yields in the US, you mentioned negative in other areas. How do you expect those assets to behave within the portfolio on a go forward basis? We believe they still have a benefit. And specifically, if you look at uh, treasury bonds in the US, there is a positive yield. It's not as high as it once was, but it's certainly positive and attractive relative to most other developed markets. So in our view, there's room to fall in a negative uh, economic outcome. And that's critically important because you wanna make sure that there's, uh, there's adequate protection in the case of a negative economic surprise. Uh, you also have relatively steep yield curves in, in the U.S., and they've gotten steeper. And, and so th this is something I think that is a common misperception among investors. But you can actually do better by holding treasury bonds at a constant duration. You can do better than the yield if you have a persistently steep yield curve. This has been the case in Japan. If you actually look at Japanese government bonds since yields fell below 2% on the 10-year, They've been one of the best performing asset classes on the planet from a return relative to risk perspective, because they've been consistently low. You haven't seen a big spike in yields and you've had a persistently steep yield curve. And so every year you get a little bit of price appreciation as your interest rate falls. And so, um, so that's a somewhat technical explanation, but the idea is that these assets still offer a premium relative to cash. And most importantly, they, they provide a reliable hedge to, to an outcome that would be really bad for the thing you probably have too much of, 
which are growth sensitive, you know, equities and credit. Um, and so we still see a role for them even at these yields. Um, but you know, it's it, it probably your menu of options has shrunk over the years as as more and more of these bond markets have gone negative. Yeah, the, the yeah. one thing I would add really quick is if you look at the last period of rising rates, so the 1970s when rates went from you know low single digits to mid-teens, uh, if you own 60-40, you got crushed. Right. And it's because the rates rose, you have to ask why did they rise? They rose because inflation took off. And if you don't have inflation hedges in your portfolio, you're, you're going to underperform. So part of risk parity isn't just stocks and bonds in, in risk-weighted you know, uh, manner. It's also own inflation hedges. And if you get rising rates because of inflation hedges, a risk parity portfolio would have done exceptionally well in the 1970s. Its total return would have been probably better than the last 10 years. Um, and so I think there's a big misunderstanding in terms of what it really means. It's not just owning stocks and bonds at equal risk. It's owning a balanced portfolio that, that's diversified across different economic environments. And what forces the rates higher is what you're protecting against, not the actual rates themselves. Well, I've got two comments on that. One is on your comments, Damien, about you know the shape of the curve is, uh, sounds like you've been reading Homer and Leibowitz there, um, you know, um, <laughs> inside the yield book, uh, required reading for any uh, enterprising bond analyst out there. Uh, highly recommend it. Um, and also, if you have trouble sleeping, it's a very good cure for that as well. Um, but definitely uh, very important in bond management. But then also what you're talking about, Alex, of having these things for inflation hedges. And one, uh, one idea out there has been this uh, idea of something called the permanent portfolio. And I, I stumbled across this early in my career about 20 years ago, where someone just said, you know, you put 25% of your assets in, in a cash-like investment for safety, you do something in the bond market, call it long treasuries, as Damien's kind of recommending here. By the way, you probably want a bar bet right now if you said what yields more, the 30-year treasury or the corporate bond market. I think most people would miss that today. Um, but then they also add in something like real estate in there and then gold. So when I, or I'm sorry, and, and equities, real estate, gold, and then a hybrid of equities. So one thing I, I didn't hear from you guys is the real estate component. And we talked about also how people have concentrated portfolios, but a lot of Americans specifically have a lot of their wealth tied in real estate, right? The house is the biggest investment they make in life. How, how do you think about incorporating that into one's asset allocation or should they be you know, just segmented accounts where it's that middle account, my house is my house, my investments are my investments. How do you think about that when discussing with your high net worth clients, for instance? Yeah, I mean, the, the house is, it's less of an investment. I mean, it turns out to be an investment because it, it appreciates over time, but you're living there and you're not going to sell it and live on the streets and use that money to, to cover your lifestyle. So, so generally your primary home, we don't treat it like as part of your portfolio because it serves a different function, but we do have clients who have multiple homes and maybe they rent it out or there's, it's treated more like an investment. There's a gray area there. Um, so that's generally how we think about that. But real estate as an asset class is, is, a, is a great asset, particularly for taxable investors because of the tax efficiency of, of, of its return stream. Um, and it's a good diversifier to some of the assets that we talk about. Of course, it's less liquid um, when you're talking about private real estate, um, but it's, uh, it's definitely something to, to add uh, for, for most uh, investors. Yeah, there's a big, big part of what we do uh, in terms of building portfolios for clients are allocating to return streams in the private markets. And real estate is probably the largest allocation that we have there. We think 
the private markets are the best way to get access to that asset class versus public market REITs, which tend to behave a lot more like equities. So when we talk about the four asset classes and, and how to structure a public portfolio, we, we tend to focus on um, you know, stocks, bonds, commodities. But then if you're thinking about your broad menu of options, we actually spend a significant amount of time sourcing interesting investments within the private markets, real estate probably being the largest. I wanted to talk about, I guess you guys have been mentioning some of the risks that are inherent in many people's portfolios today. If, if we use the 60-40 portfolio as a proxy, um, one of them, Alex, you mentioned is just the lack of inflation protection within there as they mostly concentrate on equities and bonds. Um, the other risk, I suppose, is just also one that was brought up earlier, which is the, the hidden concentration risk where People think that because they're 60% equities that you know, they're, they're fairly well diversified when truly the, the risk and return is largely you know, coming from the equity side of the portfolio. What type of risks you know, should investors think about if they were to take the, the risk parity approach, something with more of a balanced contribution to risk uh, in their portfolio? What are the downsides of their, their potential pitfalls? Uh, I'd say the biggest one is uh, most people, most people's reference point is the stock market. Okay, so when you when you turn on CNBC or you look at the front page of the Wall Street Journal, it, it tells you when it when it talks about the market, it's talking about the stock market. It's not talking about the bond market. It's not talking about the you know commodity market or any other market. It's it's a stock market. And when your reference point is the stock market, and in you as we know, the stock market is very volatile. If you're taking the slow and steady wins the race approach and you have a steadier return stream, which we think risk parity can achieve because it's just more balanced, you're gonna be disappointed when the stock market's doing well and you'll be you know, thrilled when it's doing poorly because that's your reference point. So I think that's the biggest risk is that you, you get off the ride at the wrong time and you jump on the, the stock market ride and then it falls and then you get off that ride and you get on the slow and steady wins the race ride and you go back and forth. Um, but if you, if, you, if you separate yourself from that natural bias of, of tracking versus the stock market, and your goal is just achieve you know, consistent uh, growth of your portfolio over time and minimize your risk of big drawdowns and minimize your risk of a lost decade, um, risk parity to us makes much more sense than being equity centric. Because I think you can get similar returns, if not better, with much less risk. But it requires you to have that perspective. That, that prevents you from doing the wrong thing at the wrong time. Yeah, so when you, when you talk about these, we're talking very broadly, you're talking stocks, bonds, commodities and the like. Um, how do you incorporate new information? How do you think about new assets? So uh, obviously we, we live in a world where cryptocurrencies are a big craze right now. Um, there's been this resurgence of retail trading, uh, which has changed some of the dynamics and flows. And, you know, look, we're all about democratization and, you know, having access that's why we do these type of things is to, to get more investors but how are you incorporating that into your thinking and your modeling because you if you're talking about risk parity you've got to think about not just the volatility of the assets but how they weave it and interact we call correlation right um how are you incorporating this new newer regime are you just saying there's nothing new under the sun and therefore we're going to continue to stick to the tried and true model the framework hasn't changed so this notion that growth and inflation are the dominant drivers of relative asset class performance. And each of the assets we talked about have a very understandable relationship to those different outcomes. That hasn't changed. Uh, I think a lot of people try to build portfolios around correlations 
that's a mistake because the correlations are not stable. They're artifacts of those relationships I mentioned. So for instance, stocks and bonds historically, if you look over very long periods of time, actually have uh, you know, close to a zero correlation. But at any point in time, you know, it's, it's actually significantly negative or significantly positive. So in the 70s, stocks and bonds were positively correlated. In the recent period, they've been very negatively correlated. If you build a portfolio banking on that relationship remaining stable, you could run into a lot of trouble if suddenly the correlation shifts to what it had been in the 70s. And the reason, so, but you can actually go to those relationships, we, the relationships we talked about to the economic drivers to understand the correlation. So when inflation is the dominant driver of asset classes, you actually find that stocks and bonds have a very similar sensitivity. So as inflation surprises to the upside, they both do poorly. If you get this disinflation like we did in the 80s and 90s, they do well. So they have a positive correlation. When growth becomes the dominant driver, inflation has been more benign for, recent, for the recent decade then growth, growth has very different uh, outcomes with regards to, to stocks and bonds. And so when you get a negative growth surprise, it's good for bonds, bad for stocks and vice versa. And that's the reason why you've had that negative correlation uh, between stocks and bonds. So we actually think this framework allows you to not have to predict that. It doesn't mean that you might want to, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't incorporate new assets as they become available. So crypto is a great example. Crypto, I think of as digital gold. So we utilize gold now. It has some advantages in terms of uh, it's had you know thousands of years of history as a storehold of wealth. Crypto's had a you know ten year history. Um, it's obviously much easier to hold in the context of a of a of a public fund. Um, but crypto could end up being a pretty significant uh, form of, of of saving wealth, and we may want to add that at some point as a diversifier relative to gold. And so we are actively looking at that. So I would think of it more as the framework stays, um, I, I think this stays consistent, but that over time we can further diversify the options or the asset classes that we hold to diversify against those growth and inflation outcomes. So I think the, the question on investors' mind is which regime are we in? Have we, have we turned the corner? I mean, the inflation's on everyone's mind. Uh, we're seeing estimates of growth this year uh, across economists about be at unprecedented levels, things we haven't seen in 20 years uh, of those forecasts. And the disconnect between rates and that and that growth rate um, is one of the largest uh, in magnitude we've seen in a long time as well. So which regime are we in? Uh, do you guys buy into the idea that this is going to be a growth environment? Is it an inflation environment? Is it a little of column A and column B? Um, wh where do you think we are today? Yeah, it's it's a it's really challenging because it constantly shifts too. It's it's not like you go into one regime and you're stuck there for five years, um, because a lot of this is not necessarily what happens in the future. It's what happens versus what was discounted, and and as you know, markets are discounting machines and they're always trying to predict what the future looks like. And so the pricing shifts based on what the expectation is, and then it shifts again based on the changing expectations. So you're constantly moving in and out of these environments because it's all relative to what is discounted, which constantly changes. Um, but, but if you zoom out and you just ask us, what do you think, let's say the next 10 years looks like? Um, my, my guess is, is inflation will become more of an issue over the next 10 years. Um, and it's because you have the central bank trying to get you there and they have the ability to print. So, um, so and I think they're just gonna keep doing that until they get inflation. And maybe it runs too hot, um, and you know, and maybe they are unsuccessful, and you have a deflation. 
um, or anything in between. But I, I'd say the odds are tilted towards inflation just because you know the money printers are trying to do that. Yeah, yeah it's, um, it's hard. Well, I was going to say it's it's hard to predict where things are going. Um, but I would say that at least over the last few months, you can observe the performance of the assets, and that can tell you a lot about how people are pricing the current set of circumstances. So currently, you can see commodities and stocks are outperforming. So we are in a rising growth, rising inflation environment. You're also starting to price in more tightness in terms of monetary policy which has been you know, a headwind, particularly for the bond markets, but, but more recently has been a headwind for everything. As you, as you have rising discount rates, rising long-term yields, that's a headwind for most things because most things are far off cash flows that you're discounting back to today. And so when you get rising yields, that lowers the value of those cash flows today. And so that potentially could be a problem if, if you, you continue to get that type of response. Um, although it seems like that that may have you know reached at least a temporary plateau uh, recently. Yeah, um, I, I think that's interesting. You talk about expectations about the Fed, and well, that's been on uh, a lot of people's minds. Is that the the Fed first hike uh, off of zero? Which uh, I remember the fool me once, fool me twice, fool me thrice. I don't know what it is. Fancy speak for four, uh, but we kept getting fooled by the Fed and the bond market. Um, you know pushing that rate hike forward. Um, one of uh, one of our analysts asked, well, what's the historical track record of the bond market versus the Fed in terms of their predicting when the Fed hikes? I said, it, you know, it's about as good as every other forecast, pretty much not very good. So we get in the psyche where we think, oh, the Fed has to do something, but they're actually telling you just the opposite. As you mentioned, Damien, we're going to stay lower for longer. We're going to do this. And look, a steepening curve helps one of their main uh, their main uh, people that they look for, and that's the banking system, right? Having a steeper curve, it really helps the banking model. So, you know, a lot of people want to go all in on these trades, but, you know, what kind of challenges do you see out there in today's environment? Like, what are the challenges with investing? Is, is it the FOMO? Um, is it the retail? Like, my neighbor's getting rich buying the stock. I need to do something. What do you see differently? Or is it just the same story? It's the, that we need to have a process. We need to be systematic. Um, the, the, the most important asset allocation decision usually is to invest, right? If you have a steady program, that, that's one of the best things you can do for yourself. So what do you see as different in this environment when it comes to your clientele and just investors in general? I, I'd say one of the biggest differences is cash being at zero. And that that's something that changes not just behavior, but it should change your expectations of what to what to, you should get out of markets. Because you know assets price off of cash, and you know 100 years stocks beat cash by five or six percent a year. Cash is zero, price to be really low for 30 years. You shouldn't expect 10 percent returns out of stocks, and and I don't think most people think that way because it's a longer term perspective, and they see the market was up 15 percent last year, and that's okay, that was a good year, but that's that's extraordinary considering that interest rates are at zero. Um, so I think part of one of the biggest challenges is is adjusting long-term expectations down, which, which uh, reverberates through all of the investment topics. Because if you, if you should only expect you know, 6% out of stocks, then you shouldn't expect very high returns out of your total portfolio, you know, especially if it's dominated by stocks. Um, and and you know, that, that should adjust your, your actual assumptions. It should adjust what you spend if you're a retiree. It should you know, be factored in across the board. 
Um, and then also, uh, how do you diversify and achieve that return? Or you know, don't don't take excess risk to try to get a little bit more when you can you know take a forty percent hit by doing that. So balancing risk and return is very challenging. It's a it's an extraordinary time because expected returns are lower and risk is higher. That that backdrop presents major challenges for investors, and I think the way you handle that is critical. I think you have to be more diversified. You have to be more innovative, and I think you really have to understand all the bad things that can happen given, you know, kind of the unprecedented uh, degrees of money printing and interest rates and, uh, you know, populism and, and uh, deflationary pressures, all of that happening at the same time. Um, I think it's just so important to be aware of all that. It, it's interesting. It kind of comes full circle back to where we started the conversation, which is how to think about risk. I don't think human beings are created to understand risk. It's just, it's not something that we can compute easily in our brains. I've seen this time and time again. And so you have all of these new entrants into the market. Uh, I was looking, I saw a survey of uh, people receiving stimulus checks. It looks like 50% of that money is going to go into their Robinhood accounts. You have a, a lot of people who are taking a tremendous amount of risk because they tend to buy the riskier parts of the market, things like Bitcoin or Tesla or whatever. And they don't, they don't have much experience with that risk. And so my guess is that it's going to exacerbate the moves in both directions because you're going to have a lot of extreme emotional reactions to very big moves that people are not prepared for. So I just think in general, this is a, a speculative driven market, a very retail driven market, which I don't think fundamentally it changes how it works, but it does probably increase the range of outcomes and the volatility that we'll experience in markets. And because we're not wired to handle volatility, it's probably going to lead to a lot of investors doing very poorly with their investments because they're going to end up selling at the absolute wrong time. You mentioned volatility, and um, this, this will kind of hopefully bring a full circle too. Um, how important is rebalancing or readjusting one's weights in the portfolios to your overall process? I mean, uh, mathematically, you know, we, we know that if you have a lot of vol and you have low correlation, um, that actually generates return just from rebalancing. And so it's, it's a great concept, right? H how much do you integrate that into there? And what do you think about as thresholds for doing that? Or are you just recalibrating models, just you're doing it monthly, weekly, quarterly? How, how do you think about that? And how should investors think about that rebalancing component? Because that's one thing when you talk about our brains not handling risk, we own risk, it does very well. All of a sudden, now we have much more of it, right? Yeah. That's, and, it's, and, and you want to let it ride. Because it, right. it feels great. It, this is so different than every other aspect of your life. If you have good outcomes with a dentist, you keep going back to the dentist. You have good outcomes with a lawyer, you, you hire that lawyer for future work. In our business, if you just go find the managers that have done the best, you tend to do the worst because of the, because of the, the randomness and the outcomes. So it, it, is a, it is a really good point. Um, in terms of rebalancing, the best strategy, and, and you alluded to this as well, no matter what strategy you take, whether it's 60-40 or risk parity or something else, the most important thing you, you can do is be disciplined and regularly rebalance, meaning sell your winners and, and buy the ones that have underperformed. And in that, that process of buying low and selling high consistently, programmatically, it adds incremental return to your portfolio, which is really powerful. And I think something that a lot of people don't fully appreciate. There is a challenge though, in the sense that 
you can generate taxes if you do that. And so what, what we found is that a lot of clients end up and a lot of investors generally end up not doing that as much as they should because they get stuck. They have an appreciated stock. They don't want to sell that stock and generate a taxable gain. And so they get more and more concentrated over time. And so they don't get the benefits of rebalancing. That's actually one of the reasons why we ended up implementing our strategy in an ETF because ETFs allow you to do the rebalancing without generating capital gains, which is really powerful. Absolutely, absolutely. So, all right, well, gentlemen, we're getting close to the top of the hour. So Alex and Damien, can you tell our listeners where they can get more information um, on Evoke, the, the great materials you guys put out? Um, where's the best way to get in touch with you guys? Uh, our website is evokeadvisors.com. Um, so is that with an O or an E? We're having this debate internally of advisors. Uh, we grew up in old school where it was O's, but our style guide now tells us E. So I want to be clear on advisors now as people are starting to gravitate. It's with an O, correct? Uh, yes. Yes. It's okay. with a no. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so, so our website has information about us and uh, we write white papers on topics that we think are counterintuitive or widely misunderstood. And one of our rules is keep them short because we know people don't read things that are long. Um, so that, that's on our website um, and, uh, and public and available for everyone. Okay. Yeah, sorry sorry to rattle you there with the O versus E, but it's been one of these things where I was adamant that it should be an O and uh, our style guy told us that no, um, it's E, that's the way the world goes. And I'm like, <laughs> no, that's not right. You know, so anyway, and I'm like, are we gonna change it to double line capital? Like we're the capital of double line with an O? Anyway, um, so not to digress. Well, gentlemen, it's been great, but I'd be remiss if I didn't let Sam introduce you to the final part and his favorite part of the show. So Sam, kick it off. All right, my favorite part of the show is called Sherman Says. where I will offer a series of alternating prompts amongst the three of you, each with your own unique prompt that you will provide a top of mind response to. Uh, we've asked in the past that you keep these top of mind responses limited to one or two words, but uh, you know, let's, yeah, let's just try to keep them short for this round since we have uh, the three of you on here. So I'm gonna start it off with Mr. Sherman first and then followed by uh, Alex and then Damien and then just keep cycling through. So the first one, the Sherman with real yields. Pause, a uh, real yields. Uh, I was gonna say positive, like the front part of the tips markets actually has a positive real yield priced in or real growth rate priced in, but uh, the, the nominal market is extremely negative. So that was not a one word answer. I failed already, Sam, sorry. <laughs> All right, let's see if Alex could do better with Texas power crisis. Texas power crisis. Um, be diversified. You know, if you're concentrated and you're, you have, you know, limited uh, bandwidth, bad things can happen. So be diversified. All right. Risk, par risk parity in action in the power grid. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> All right. Next one for you, Damien, with ESG investing. ESG investing. The future. All right, Sherman, buy the dip mentality. Works until it doesn't. <laughs> All right, Alex, uh, let's see here. I'm going to pick one of the four I've listed with free money. It, as long as it lasts, enjoy it. <laughs> It'll be for a little while now. 
Let's see here. Uh, meme stock. Meme stonks. Apologies. I got to add the, uh, the stonks there. That one's for you, Damien. It's not going to end well. All right. Uh, Sherman with yield curve control. Non-existent in America. All right. Cape ratio. Uh, how high can it go? Noise versus signal. Important to know, to know what, you know, basically important to be uh, systemized, have a process. Cooking. Cooking? Uh, <laughs> necessary. <laughs> Cooking in a pandemic, how about that? Let me frame it around yeah. there for you. There's a bit of catharsis there, I would say. Um, but then again, I need the recipe. I'm a systematic rules-based person, so I, it's not that I'm freestyling in the kitchen. All right, I'm going to send you some then. All right. <laughs> All right, and then, then uh, managing drawdowns. Close your eyes. And then the final one to wrap up the show is consumer price inflation. Non-existent. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, gentlemen, that that's a wrap. Uh, we really appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time with us. Uh, thanks for your relationship with Double Line. We, I think you guys put out really good work too. So I encourage all of our listeners to go go to the Evoke websites, Evoke Advisors. That's with an O. dot com. Uh, download some of these white papers too, and I, you'll be a better investor for really realizing these concepts and trying to implement some of this and continue to crank out the good work, fellas. And again, appreciate you taking the time and tune in for our next episode of Sherman So coming soon. This podcast was recorded on March 9th, 2021. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide updates or changes.